Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Maeve McClendigan, and this is The Tip-Off, the podcast where we take you behind the scenes of some of the UK's best investigative journalism. Over this first series, we've explored journalists breaking big stories, exposing things that people had no idea were happening. But I wanted to finish up this series talking about something else. How do you tell an ongoing story? How do you keep the public and editors interested in a tragedy that unfurls over years, not days. On this episode, we look at two stories from journalists trying to give a voice to people who are getting lost in the crowd. As the migration crisis continues in Europe, you've got a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean. The UN estimates there are 100,000 Syrian refugees now so in Lebanon. So far this year, More than 9,000 migrants have arrived illegally by boat from Turkey. Well, it's a serious problem. We haven't seen anything like it since the Second World War. We start getting... with Rebecca Omenera. It's easy to lose track of just when the refugee crisis started. The coverage of people huddled in camps or the fragile bodies of children washed up carelessly on foreign beaches has ebbed and flowed for years. But Rebecca has been there from the start. It's been a story that she's been covering since 2011. At that time, as, as always, there was a heated debate in the UK about immigration. And I was just very interested in why people were coming and why people were taking um, uh, these really dangerous routes. So risking their lives to um, you know, hang on to a lorry rather than sort of getting on a plane or things like that. Rebecca is a freelance journalist. And six years ago, she decided to start funding her own trips out to places like Spain and Greece. So I went to border countries and I interviewed people as they were coming and as they were making their way across Europe to get to the UK. On these trips, she started talking to people who were making the long, often dangerous journeys to Europe. And one man's story struck a particular chord. A young guy that I met um, from Gambia, I met him in Ceuta, which is a Spanish enclave, which is closer to Morocco than Europe, but it's officially Spanish. And he, um, I think he was about maybe 18 or 19 when I met him, looked much younger, really sweet, quiet guy. And I was interviewing him generally about 
life in in Ceuta and what his plans were for the future and he just started telling me about the the journey that he made through the Sahara Desert and I could just see it on his face he was just utterly traumatized like haunted by the things that he'd seen he was talking about the heat he was talking about leaving people behind and the fear of being left behind yourself at this time much of the media coverage of the crisis was focusing on the European leaders' reactions to asylum seekers arriving at their borders. This man's story told Rebecca something else was happening. And, and what I soon began to realise was that the story was actually not about people arriving in the UK or Europe. It was actually about what happened to them before they got here. While everyone had a good idea why people were fleeing Syria or even Afghanistan, the same was not true for the huge numbers of asylum seekers fleeing from West and East Africa. Those stories were simply not being told. And Rebecca felt a particular affinity to the people she was meeting. My background is um, my parents came to this country from Nigeria um, in different circumstances. And I've got lots of relatives still over there and lots of people want to come here, obviously. And um, some of them are desperate. Some of them are doing fine. But... I've not had any personal family members yet who've had to take that risk. So I've, I, I, it's, it's kind of like been a personal question for me. She had the passion and her eyes on the story she wanted to tell. But as a freelance reporter, Rebecca faced a battle to get editors to take interest in the stories she was pitching. She often found herself working weekend jobs to save the money to send herself on reporting trips. To make the freelancing work, I was doing part-time jobs, like working in shops or call centres and things. So a lot of my reporting was done um, during work holidays. So I had a week where I could sort of go to Calais or a week where I could sort of go to the borders of Greece and Turkey or whatever. But I, I just feel like uh, there are questions that are not being answered and I, I want to go and find out. And I just, I don't think it's as simple as people wanting to come to the UK because our benefit system is great. And to do that, they're willing to like risk their lives by getting into a boat that's, that could sink. Um, so, and I thought as a journalist, that was, it's one of the things I want to do. I want to sort of ask those sort of questions that, and, and challenge accepted narratives, so. In 2016, Rebecca managed to secure funding from the Overseas Development Institute to fund a research trip to Africa. She wanted to go and talk to people right back at the first steps of the asylum journey. She would go to Ethiopia, a country with a huge population of refugees fleeing across the border from Eritrea. It's the second largest refugee hosting country in Africa. But it wasn't going to be a simple trip. At the time we went, which was last winter, there were protests in Ethiopia, so there was a state of emergency, and that meant it was very difficult to get press visas. So that I think it took maybe a couple of months. It was, um, yeah, quite surprising. Social media had been shut down by the government. And preparing for the trip, Rebecca was finding it hard to get anything but the approved official lines from people in the country. She was able to use encrypted messaging apps to make contact with some people who could give her a more truthful idea of what was going on. And she finally managed to get her visa. So she packed her things and soon was touching down in Addis Ababa. Arriving um, in Ethiopia, uh, yeah, I was I was really nervous to start with because I was worried because we'd had so much trouble trying to get the visas sorted. I was worried that we might not have the right one. Rebecca knew she wanted to visit the many refugee camps that are dotted along the border of the country. 
These camps were home to nearly 160,000 registered Eritreans living in Ethiopia. But getting access to these far-flung sites involved a serious amount of bureaucracy. So to actually visit the camps, um, we had to go to a special office downtown in Addis Ababa and um, apply for permission. Um, The woman there was really nice. Actually, it seemed to be going really well because she said, oh, great. Um, I see you've got the right documents from the UK. You've got your visa. It's all sorted. And I said to her, there are six refugee camps in the north. Um, I'd like to go to them all. And she said, that's fine. No problem. Have you got a fixer? Great. So permission sorted, Rebecca and the photographer she was travelling with headed north, boarding a flight to Axe. Um, so as we flew down, um, the landscape is just stunning because it's very mountainous and green and lush and fertile and just a really beautiful country. So this is the sort of place you'd like to go sort of hiking or, or on holiday. Touching down in Axum, the next job was to get the permissions needed to enter the camp. In Addis, she'd been told this would be easy. So we, we go to this little town um, and we go to uh, an office and the office for the north um, was in this place called Shira. And so we went there and we spoke to the guy and we told him we got all our permissions and he just he just kept us waiting for ages and then said, no, <laughs> you haven't got the right permission. So you, you can only go to one refugee camp and it's this camp. Uh, so that kind of scuppered our plans a little bit. So instead of the six camps Rebecca had hoped to visit, she would only get to one. The pressure was on to get all the stories she needed from that one site. The refugee camp she was allowed into was called Adi Harush. It was the temporary home for 27,000 asylum seekers. The vast majority were Eritrean exiles who had crossed the border fleeing the repressive regime there. Rebecca had researched all of this before she arrived. But that didn't prepare her for the vast scale of the camp. Set up in 2010, the original tents had been replaced by row upon row of hollow concrete shacks overlaid with sheets of corrugated iron. Children played football in the dust or tended to small flocks of goats. Donkey-led carts kicked up dirt as they ferried supplies to small shacks dotted across the huts. Rebecca's guides led her to a series of classrooms that had been built to support the hundreds of children living in the camp. And among the desolate poverty, there was something fun going on. A poised, beautiful dance teacher was leading a crowd of young children in a traditional Eritrean dance. The teacher caught Rebecca's eye. She was teaching the young people how to dance, and initially I just assumed that she was um, an NGO worker. I didn't realise that she herself was an Eritrean refugee because of the way that she held herself you know she was sort of very confident um sort of very attractive charismatic woman the woman was Ferenyi a mid 20 year old who was teaching dance to the children in the camp amongst the poverty and hardship the class prompted smiles I was like okay great I have to speak to her Rebecca knew she wanted to hear her story so she arranged for an interview so uh, we we had an initial interview. Um, she um, well, she said she didn't speak English, but she she understands English. I think she was just shy. So we spoke through a translator, and I kind of got the bare bones of her story. So this was in a classroom. There were three of us. Um, one of the someone from a, the charity that kind of runs these classes. And so they started. 
But Ferenyi was shy. She wasn't giving much away. She was kind of giving one-word answers. So I asked why she left Eritrea, um, what her plans were for the future, asked about her kids and that sort of thing. Rebecca was getting nothing. And this was the only camp she could go to. But she knew these things take patience. And one day she saw an opportunity. And then it wasn't until um, we'd spent a couple of days at, on the camp, and this is what I find with these sorts of stories, is that the more time you put in with people, the richer the stories are that you get out. You can't just rock up somewhere and someone's going to tell you everything. Um, it tends to be when you least expect it. So I think we were, um, she, she said that she had to go and pick up her kid during one of the classes. And I said, oh, I'll just, I'll come along with you. And um, as we were walking, then we started talking and she started to reveal more of her story. The 26-year-old had fled Eritrea six years ago. Nothing in her life had been easy. She had left her home country at the behest of her husband, a violent, alcoholic man 10 years her senior, who regularly threatened to infect the young woman with HIV. In the camp, he beat Frenier so hard she was knocked unconscious. She was eight months pregnant at the time. In the camp, she gave birth to her third child. When she told officials there to keep her husband away from her, they were little help. They were not interested much, she told Rebecca. I reported him to UNHCR protection officer. They were not interested much. Eventually, her husband left the camp for Sudan and for when he was free from the violence. It was only then she began to take part in the dance classes, eventually taking up the role of teacher. You know, she's really struggled, but she's she's doing better now. When she first came, they, they described her as when, when she first arrived to their classes, like maybe a few months before, they described her as being sort of quite hunched, very quiet not wanting to speak to anyone and really, really timid. Rebecca published Fremwi's story in the New Statesman, and she also wrote pieces for Lacuna magazine and the ODI's blog. She still writes about the refugee crisis when she can, but as other journalists piled in on the story, it became harder to convince editors to hire her. And it wasn't just an increase in attention of the topic that Rebecca was navigating. Rebecca has been nominated for the prestigious Orwell Prize twice, and as a black British journalist with Nigerian heritage, she can offer a perspective and insight that most other journalists working in the UK can't. But she still finds it hard to get her work commissioned. Uh, so I guess one of the difficult things for me about telling these stories is... Um, and I know lots of other people feel like this as well, women and working class people, is that I, I never feel confident enough that I, I can be telling these stories. I remember going to um, a pitching workshop at The Guardian when I first started freelancing years ago now. And uh, one of the section editors there told me that you can only write about things that you've experienced because I proposed to write about immigration. <laughs> and uh, that for me is kind of telling because it, it you you read the newspapers and you read the books and and the longer sort of feature articles and it does tend to be white men mostly writing about <laughs> refugees and, and migrants and, and uh I'm starting to feel more confident that actually yeah why shouldn't I tell those stories like my it's also part of understanding who I am as well like I grew up in this country I was born in this country but I've never felt quite British 
And I only started to feel British when I started reporting on these issues because I realised the power of like having that passport and actually being in this country meant that I wasn't <laughs> trying to make that journey in that way, if that, that makes sense. I, I guess you just realise um, how powerful that identity is. Last year, a damning survey of 700 British journalists reveals just 0.2% were black. 0.2%. Extraordinary journalists like Rebecca are struggling to get their work commissioned. People tend to trust a, a white male middle class or well-spoken journalist more than if I rock up. I just, I do get the sense that there's some unease with the idea that I'm there to interview them and I'm there to tell the story, um, which is frustrating, but it, it, it's fine because for me, the, the official people aren't important. It's actually when I go out in the field and I actually am speaking to people who are going through these experiences and I'm listening to them, I can sense that we have a rapport and, you know, I, I have had like Afghan people I met randomly in Bulgaria just calling me sister simply because of the colour of my skin, even though they know that I'm actually British and I've got all the privileges of being born in the West, there's still that sense of kinship. And so I think that lends something to my stories that someone else might not get. Rebecca continues to report on the experiences of asylum seekers, the journeys they make and the stories they carry with them. And tens of thousands of people like Frenry remain in the camps. But thousands more leave, deciding to make the perilous journey across the Mediterranean in search of a better life in Europe. In part two, we'll hear about the next step on this long path, as another freelance journalist, Rosalind Warren, explores what happens in the space in between, as she boards a rescue boat, patrolling the waves between Libya and Italy. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
I just wanted to pause here to thank you all for your support for the tip-off. When we started this project, we had no idea there would be this much interest. And we're really overwhelmed by your kind iTunes reviews and your lovely messages on social media. We want to keep telling the stories of some remarkable detective work, and we've got plenty of ideas for investigations to dig into. But we're also keen to hear from you. If there's an investigation you want to know more about, or if you have a great story about some juicy digging, then please do get in touch. You can email us, tipoffpodcast at gmail.com, or tweet us at tipoffpodcast. Now back to our story. It was four o'clock in the morning when Rosalind Warren got the call. The Citadel, Citadel. A boat had been spotted out to sea. Rosalind dragged herself from her cabin and raced to the deck. She was on board a Médecins Sans Frontiers ship, there to report on the rescue of desperate asylum seekers who were attempting the perilous crossing from Libya to Italy. Rosalind is a freelance journalist and she'd spent months travelling the world, telling stories about women's rights from places like Guatemala, Mexico and Rwanda. She'd only arrived in Italy a few days before getting on the boat, and things had been a rush. When I arrived in Palermo, I arrived late on um, a sort of Thursday night, and at eight o'clock the next morning, I thought I'd have a couple of days to prepare no, uh, <laughs> eight o'clock the next morning, she sends over a list of, this is what you need to pack and you need to be down here in, within the hour or you're going to miss a boat. She'd thrown what she thought she'd need into a bag. Um, I just bought everything that I thought would be useful in practical terms. So like a thin waterproof jacket, like sturdy shoes, you know, the basic things. So with just a hastily packed bag, she headed to the port. Um, so yeah, uh, we departed from Palermo mid, mid-June and I was on the boat with them for under a week um, for around five days. And it was one of the most uh, intensive, uh, scary, but great experiences in, I've had in journalism. The MSF ship she would be on was called Prudence. And Ros soon realised there would be no home comforts here. She was housed in a tiny cabin. In this bunk bed that I felt like I was 10 years old again. Um, and it was very cramped, there was no window, and it was not a comfortable room because the aircon was constantly running. And I don't mean just like a, a sort of quiet little hum in the corner and it's a nice breeze. I mean, this full blast of absolutely freezing air all the time. The first day passed with no sign of a rescue. Rosalind helped the crew prepare life jackets and desperately tried to settle her stomach and find her sea legs. Then the next day came and went. Still no rescues. Nothing but open sea. She started to get a bit concerned. She'd pitched stories to editors already and funded the trip out of her own savings. Was she going to arrive back to shore with nothing? Each day, she'd listen intently to the walkie-talkie she'd been given by the MSF staff. She had been told to listen out for key signals. If you hear Citadel, Citadel, um, that's the emergency uh, for like all hands on deck, you have to get into emergency positions. Or if you hear MSF staff to deck, MSF staff to deck, you had to run onto the deck and it was basically you had to throw on all your clothes. It didn't matter what time it was or where or what you were doing. You had to be on deck ready for the rescues. And at 4am on the third day of her trip, the call came in. 
And I was very proud of myself because I was the third one on deck. Um, I had mostly because I think years of training on how not to be late for school. Up on deck, Rosin was desperately trying to adjust her eyes to the dark night sky. And we were watching as the crew and the ship crew um, were looking out. And in the distance, there was this tiny white speck. And bear in mind, it's pitch black. It's, I couldn't see a thing. You are on, on you know, you're in the middle of the sea. You're in the middle of absolutely nowhere. You cannot see anything. Um, but they managed to spot this tiny white uh, speck in the distance. A tiny rubber dinghy had been spotted on the horizon. She watched as the MSF crew swung into action, sending out a scout boat and then coming back with the dinghy. Um, and I run up to the, the first floor deck uh, with the other journalist. We're looking out as they are... They, some of the crew, MSF crew, get into this tiny, their own boat. They go over to the boat, count how many people were there, how many women and children are on board, then come back in their boat. The dinghy was pulled in and the people on board brought up onto the ship. They were desperate, scared and soaking. Uh, some of them are drenched in water, some of them are drenched in petrol. Some of the women were screaming in agony as the petrol burnt their skin. That was just the start. For the next 16 hours, the ship found dinghy after dinghy crammed with desperate men, women and children. The majority of people they were finding were from West African countries. But in reality, it was a whole mix. Bangladeshi, Syrian and others. Some were families, some were children travelling alone, some were pregnant women. At one point in the day, Rosin was tasked with keeping watch of the bobbing boats that were just specks on the horizon. At one point, just me and someone else saying, don't lose where that boat is. You just stare at it. And then when we come back, point out where it is. <laughs> I'm like, no pressure. Um, if I lose sight of this boat, I don't know where, <laughs> where it may end up. Um, and the, 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 yeah, this point when there were six boats, um, they were jotted all around uh, our, our ship. By 10 p.m. that evening, Rosalind was exhausted. She'd been up since four and far from being a passive observer, She'd been regularly pulled into the action, helping shepherd people around or collect life jackets. She had just managed to get back to her ice-cold cabin. And I think I take my shoes off and I like brush my teeth and I think I sit down for a total of two minutes before I am then called back downstairs <laughs> because they spotted this boat. Um, and it was probably um, the most shocking rescue this last rescue and it was around 10 11 p.m at this point uh, it was the most shocking in terms of uh the people being brought on board were you know did not look well there were 900 people on deck at this point and nowhere for the new arrivals to move Rosalind was given the task of encouraging dozens of bewildered people to stand up as one and move to create a corridor of space for the wounded people being dragged aboard was just um, quite uh, overwhelming, I think. Um, and that was after, yeah, what, 16, 18 hours of rescues. After a day of exhausting rescues, Rosalind surveyed the scene. Traumatised people covered every space on the boat. She knew she needed to talk to people. She wanted to hear their stories of, of how they'd come to be floating, lost at sea. But how do you do that in such chaos? During that previous day of rescue, she'd been scribbling down things whenever she could. Like I had 
a piece of paper in my pocket and a pen um, and I jotted down notes between each rescue or had my phone as well. So occasionally I'll take a photo, of, not of people's faces and things, but um, just of sort of scenes to remind me later of like how to write it up and describe it. Um, but I honestly just put away my proper camera, had my phone and a piece of paper, scraps of paper of me, shoved it in my pocket and just helped with rescues for the rest of the day. The next day was calmer. As the ship continued to patrol the open sea, Roslyn had a chance to wander the depths. Staff on board helped guide her to people who could talk. MSF had cultural moderators on board. And they speak multiple languages um, and are trained in sort of being aware of various issues that some of these people may have gone through. So, for example, there was this one woman, um, Sarah, and she was amazing. Um, and she's a Nigerian woman who now lives in um, Amsterdam. Um, but she is a complete expert when it comes to um, sex trafficking and uh, gender violence and so forth. And she was on board and I said to her before the boat departed, you know, I'm really keen to do these stories. Um, and I also, um, I'm not obviously going to gallop up to people and say, tell me about your traumatic experiences. Obviously, that's not journalism. So I said to her, I'm like, if, you know, the people, the women that you're speaking to when they arrive, if you think someone might be willing to talk to me or... Um, if you can give me some advice on the best approach and, and uh, the types of things you think I should ask or so forth, it'd be great to hear from that. Sarah helped Roz talk to a lot of women. Among them was Sani. She was keen to t tell her story. Um, she could speak English and um, it was a quiet, calm moment of the journey, which was rare. <laughs> Roz crouched down and asked her if she'd talk. For two hours, the woman sat huddled in a quiet corner of the boat. And piece by piece, Sané's story came out. Um, and I just started a conversation with her. I don't know how it initially began, but it was basically, you know, where are you from? Um, would you be happy to talk to me? Um, and she, yeah, she basically uh, just talking to me for a long time and made my job quite easy because she just uh, went into lots of detail about um, her life at home and why she was on that trip. She told Roslyn she'd travel to Libya from Morocco when she was just 18, lured with the promise of well-paid work as a cleaner. But when she arrived, she realised she'd been tricked. She was held in a house with six other women, and they were forced to work as slaves, made to cook and clean without any real wages. One day, the man who owned the house got Sané on her own. He asked her if she was a virgin, and when she said yes, he tried to rape her. She fought him off, but then the man started beating her every day. Fearing for her life, one evening she jumped from a second-story window and ran, making her way to the sea. A smuggler took pity on the young woman and allowed her onto one of the boats. I thought, I'll go to Italy, she told Roz. I will face the sea. But the boat she was on was overcrowded and she was soon being buffeted by the aggressive waves. The MSF boat picked up Sané's dinghy just in time. If they were late by five or six minutes, I swore the boat would have sunk, she told Roslyn. It was tipping. I would have drowned. Yeah, it helped me paint a picture as to one of the stories I wanted to shed light on was what the journey was like for women on the, on the journey and the specific gender um, issues that additional barriers that they face on that journey and um yeah it was fairly okay but also uh, 
also it's a mixture of um working with amazing cultural mediators with a little bit of luck meeting this woman um with uh how much you know people are willing to to open up Roslyn's story from that trip were published in the Washington Post, Elle magazine, and in Vice. She continues to travel the world, telling stories of women's experiences. Some of that work is funded by grants. The rest is Roslyn covering her own costs, with the hope of making some money back when she sells her stories. More than 2,800 people have died trying to cross the Mediterranean in the first six months of this year alone. And across countries like Ethiopia, Jordan, Pakistan and Kenya, thousands of people continue to survive, living in temporary refugee camps. That's all from this first series of The Tip Off. Over these first eight episodes, we've heard how journalists have revealed huge stories, all in the public interest. There's been data leaks, undercover operations, cultivation of sources, freelance trips, and old-fashioned shoe-leather reporting. In a world where people are so quick to shout fake news, I hope we've at least provided a little more proof of the lengths and depths journalists go to hold power to account. But there are so many more investigations to dig into. We'll be back in the autumn with more stories behind the headlines. This is The Tip-Off, hosted and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan. Our theme music is by Dice Muse, and other music in this episode by Komaku, and Claire Marks. You can check out her stuff on soundcloud.com forward slash Claire Marks. Thanks to Rebecca Obanera and Rosalind Warren. You can find links to some of their stories in the show notes. And we'll be back soon for more stories behind the headlines. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.